Hello and welcome to this week's BWB Extra, where we continue our conversation with Liam Martin, tech entrepreneur and co-organiser of Running Remote. We take a deep dive into all things remote working and discuss what makes cities attractive for remote workers and how asynchronous management actually works. We talk about creating and maintaining company culture in a remote working environment, as well as the tax and staff training implications that come with working as digital nomads. There's also an additional thing there that you're describing, Liam, I think, which is the kind of flexible working alongside remote working. Yeah. Because it's kind of choosing when in the day you do your best work and provided you do the hours you need to do, you're doing them at the time that suits you rather than mm, at kind of yeah. set times. So the industry is kind of evolving in a, not to necessarily go down a tangent here, but there's on-premise work, which is in office work. There's remote work, which is working completely out of an office. Then there is hybrid work in which you are required to work in an office some of the time and then working remotely the other part of that time. And then there's flexible work, which is actually a fourth category, which I think the majority of the market is going towards, which is you can work from home or you can work from the office or you can actually work from some third space like a coffee shop, you know, a wherever the hell else you want to work from. But the choice is up to you. And the critical part with regards to flexible work is you are the decider as to whether and as to what your schedule is, as opposed to hybrid work where the company is effectively making that decision for you. Are you you quite negative then about what's going to happen to sort of major metropolis or cities? No, I think they're actually going to explode. But there's one clear premise that you need to be able to switch around, which is cities are no longer places to work, they're places to live. Okay, they're, they're going to reverse. Yeah, so if you are a really good place, if your city is really great to find a job, that's no longer going to be an advantage. What you need to do is be a really good place to live, have a fantastic lifestyle, low cost of living as an example, lots of really interesting coffee shops and yoga studios and everything that people really want when they want to be able to go to a particular city. Those are the cities that are going to succeed long-term. So if I look at London, if I look at New York, San Francisco, um, these types of major metropolises, they're not going to change fundamentally in terms of what they're delivering because they're already delivering a pretty fantastic product. There's a lot of people that are there. What's going to change is just the mindset of saying, well, where am I going to live? As opposed to, oh, I have a job in New York, so I have to move there. I think any city right now that's really focused on becoming a really great place to live has only two factors that they need to take into consideration. They need a major university and they need an airport that connects to a hub, usually with some type of daily flights that go out to like an O'Hare, a New York, you know, a London, like someplace where that person can then interact with the global economy very quickly and easily. If you can do those two things, you'll be a fantastic place to live. Get your cost of living as down as much as humanly possible, and you will have a very successful city. University is an interesting point, and I think there's a, a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, any town I ever got, I mean, I went recently to Nicosia, which is in the middle of Cyprus, which has got, you know, and it's buzzy, and you're like, oh, I like this town, what's going on? And it's got this university that's really buzzy. There's something about a university that brings a city alive, you know. Is that, well, why do you think a university is important for innovation or? They attract coffee shops, cafes, yoga studios, everything that people really want, to your point. It just gives it that buzz. Um, and one of the reasons why I moved to Montreal is it has six major universities within one kilometer of each other. It's got the highest concentration of students 
on planet Earth. And uh, that's why it's the second best city in the world for remote work. What's the plan then? With I mean, running remote is your primary focus, and you're trying to build that up as much as possible, or you're 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 focused on multiple things. What what are you sort of trying to achieve? So the mission of all of the companies that I run is we're trying to empower the world's transition towards remote work. So we run software companies. We run this conference. I'd say the co- the software or the conference is, I said before one of my dessert businesses. So something that I do on Fridays and nothing else. And then I also launched this book, which just on Thursday got on the Wall Street Journal bestsellers list, which I'm very, very excited about. And that's uh, that was the minimum requirement for us in terms of writing a book. We said, okay, we're going to write a book, but we've got to actually get people to read it. So that's been fantastic. And just getting people the information that they need to recognize that remote work is something that is not only kind of a nice to have, but it's a need to have now. 35% of the U.S. workforce is currently working remotely. It was 4% before the pandemic. So, and that's a permanent shift. It's now actually going back up. It's projected to be at 50% within the next five years. And doing all this research and work, did you, is, is your conclusion that all types of businesses would be better run remotely? I mean, forgetting the individual side of it, sort of thinking from a business perspective, because I can imagine a kind of world where it's like people almost promote themselves as a non-remote business on the basis that they have teams working together who produce higher quality stuff, if that's true and no one really seems to know, to be honest. So generally I do. Uh, and, and I actually think the core premise that you want to boil down to is I know from interacting with you, you're an incredibly charismatic person. I'm sure that when you walk into a room, people pay attention to you. Uh, I know it because I've just interacted with you for the past 15 minutes and I'm enthralled by you. As opposed to me, I'm relatively quite introverted. I usually don't interact with people all that often, particularly in large groups. Um, I'm a bit of a wallflower. You are incredibly advantageous in an on-premise office environment. Your ideas will get adopted at a much higher rate. However... Put me in the cupboard. And we'd have to get to know you a little bit longer, but your ideas may not be more effective yeah, um, yeah. Than, other, than other people. So the idea for more ideas to be adopted that are successful at a better rate... The remote model is absolutely the best one in order to be able to execute on. And more specifically, actually, the operating system of remote, which we're arguing inside of this book, which is asynchronous management, which is very, very counterintuitive to almost all forms of classic management over the last 100 years. So tell us about asynchronous management then. So right now we're communicating synchronously. We're all, you know, we can communicate at a moment's notice. We're simultaneously on this same feed. Asynchronous communication is like Netflix. The information inside of the company is available to you when you are ready to consume it. So the meeting doesn't just happen. The meeting actually happens asynchronously, meaning I would post up information about a particular issue. Maybe you would comment on it an hour later. Maybe someone else would, you know, make a counter video to mine eight hours later after that. But no one was required to be in the same place at the same time in order to be able to discuss it. But we can still make our decisions and actually make them more efficiently than in a synchronous model where you have charisma bias that works into that particular decision-making. There's a couple of uh, things that I'm, I'm finding interesting in there. I mean, one of them is that my experience of 
um, communication, say through email or through WhatsApp chats or through what, anything that's sort of written and like that is the conversation tends to get bigger. People add to it, they add things. Whereas you talk verbally, you tend to close. Like one-to-one, you, you do this thing where you just go, well, what the fucking solution? Let's just, right, we're done. Let's go for lunch, you know? So how does, I mean, asynchronous is fine to an extent, but you would just keep opening up ideas until we're like, wow, I don't, I don't know what's going on anymore. I mean, you can structure it and you can make things, certain things happen in structure, but decisions, as we all know, they're kind of made up. They're just guesses. And but so, you want to know from the tax man what the answer is. Well, if it's a factual thing, it's kind of okay. But when it's a bit more like, hey, you know, there's this subjective thing. What does everyone think? Everyone piles in and now we're completely confused. If, you, if you're verbally, you're right. You could have someone dominate in the meeting and that closes a decision. But how do you, how do you close? I guess that's, that's my question in a remote world. If we're asynchronous, you, 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 that's structure-based or? Yeah, so I can kind of work you through the way that we go through what are called uh, quiet meetings. So basically what we'll have is we'll have a project management system. We use something like Asana. We'll talk about what the issue is and what our proposed solution is to that particular issue. We don't discuss a presentation. We don't discuss the state of being at a, at a particular point. We very much focus on the issue at hand and how to come to a conclusion on that particular issue. Then we start discussing it through the comments. So we can have like 70 comments deep on a particular issue. But if we've come to a conclusion on that issue, then we literally take that, we put it to the top of the ticket, and we close the ticket. Uh, And we do actually do synchronous meetings. We just have a system in place, which is if we have less than three issues on our project management system, then all of our meetings are canceled preemptively before we have that synchronous meeting. So we effectively can just basically get rid of all the bullshit uh, and just focus on the really important issues. And the ones that actually rise to the top, by the way, have nothing to do with the operations of the company or all of those small little details to what your point was. It almost entirely has to do with people, EQ issues. Um, you know, Susan has a problem problem with Jim or Jim has a problem with Carl and we need to be able to really kind of come together and solve for that. And that's what we reserve the vast majority of our synchronous time for, not necessarily whether or not the, you know, we should be doing Times New Roman or Helvetica. So but, but I need to go further. So, okay, you whatever system, maybe you could do it, but what, what, what normally happens is a problem between people switching between different modes of defining the problem, uh, analyzing ways to solve the problem, coming up with solutions to the problem, and everyone sort of has different approaches and, you know, verbally that's chaotic. But it's also chaotic in a written form, isn't it? I mean, it's sort of... It, it, your your software, to, you've sort of developed software to sort of break down and make these things. I think what I'm trying to say is you can say, or, you know, you can say, oh, we this stage we're doing X, but people don't necessarily think like that. And they're like, well, no, I'm over here. And it's like, okay, well, I'm over here. It, you do you know what I mean? It's a chaotic, the information. But you what, you've developed some software tools to, to force people to act in a certain way? Well, well not me. These are... Just general project management tools. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah. Asana, Trello, whatever it oh, might be. Oh, sauna. Is it right? Okay. I thought we were in a sauna, like another closed space. Yeah. I, I know Trello. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so here's the here's the kind of piece that I think you're 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 nailing, which I absolutely agree with. Is there's a lot of static as opposed to signal, and what you need to be able to get rid of is a lot of that kind of verbal mumbo jumbo to be able to get to an actual conclusion 
on an issue. And one of the phenomenons that we've found is, number one, when you actually have a meeting through software, when you have it asynchronously, a lot of that stuff actually disappears. And people really focus on the conclusion to the problem. Because you you also cap this too, saying, we're coming up with a conclusion within 48 hours. Everyone get in and talk about it in the next 48 hours because we're moving forward with a particular state of action at that point. But the other part of it is you actually pull out a lot of the details that you wouldn't have otherwise thought about and everything is documented. So there are no undocumented conversations, which we found we find a lot of inside of synchronous organizations where they say, okay, well, the official thing that we're going to do is we're going to work on A. But then very quietly, you kind of just go over to the side and you say, listen, you don't want to work on it. You want to work on B. And that disempowers that particular individual because it's not out in the open. So if everything is asynchronous, everything is out into the open and you can really kind of crack open a lot of uh, sacred cows um, and deal with those issues straight on. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Clark got its start back in 1935 And while the world has changed a bit It's more than just survived From complying with the FCA And all things financy They can also speak fluently In the language of legalese Ori Clark was born and raised Right here in the UK And now for 20 years They've been helping others Get set up and on their way Ori Clark's door's always open and happy to provide straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935. Big shout out to Sean Veer Singh for a stellar jingle. You can find him at Sean Veer Singh Music on Instagram. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review, please, on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. That sort of leads me on to what I'm really interested in, I guess, which is culture and how you deal with culture in a remote work environment. Because I think that's the thing that really scares people. And, you know, definitely in the UK is a big source of discussion. How do you maintain a culture and an identity as a business when nobody's actually in a place talking to each other? We're getting into the Malcolm Gladwell stuff. Yeah, I love Malcolm Gladwell, so that's maybe why. So, I mean, for people that are not understanding this and hadn't heard it, uh, Malcolm Gladwell basically said, everyone needs to get back to the office because you need to feel like you're part of something and you can't feel part of something if you're not in a physical office. And so I think the core premise again, that he's kind of missed. So on page 149, I have a fantastic uh, little graphic here from a company called Doist, which is a company that has hundreds of remote workers all over planet earth. They operate in 47 different countries And they have this Zen diagram of what companies think team culture is, which is how you socialize together. And then what team culture actually is, is how you work together. So the issue that we've got is I actually think people didn't pay attention to their MBA 101 courses, which is a mission-driven organization is the core tenant. And if you have cultural issues inside of your company, it's usually because people don't actually know why they're there and why they're changing the world, why the work that they're doing is important and why they should continue to do it. So 
I run a very quick test with people that have issues with culture is um, I usually ask them this in person. I tell everyone to get out a piece of paper and I get them to write down, what's the mission of the company? Write it down on a piece of paper. Oh, we're supposed to do it right now. Give uh, the best uh, professional advice. Uh, known to man. Known to man. Or woman. Or woman. woman. Yeah. So to me, if you go out to your org and you ask them that question, I would say if less than 80% of those people don't know what the mission is, then you have a cultural problem inside of your organization. And that's what you need to fix for first. It's not whether or not you get a birthday cake on your birthday or whether we're going to play Cards Against Humanity, but the employee-friendly version, um, because that's the only one that's HR approved. I mean, a lot of this, at least during COVID, we started to have culture at gunpoint, which is like everyone now must come together and we must do these particular actions in order to culturally connect. And I argue that you should go to where they are. So if a remote worker, as an example, a lot of our engineers, they really love playing Oculus Quest, the virtual reality headset. And they actually have like this huge, they have a couple video games that they play with each other and they do it every Friday afternoons. We bought them the headsets, but they're literally running it like, on their Friday evenings at 8 p.m. because they're that passionate about the particular project. But more importantly, they talk about work and they kind of reconnect in that context. But it's all virtual. This is when you can go into a bar on Oculus. I bet that's where they are. They're they're in a virtual bar, which has alien strippers, someone was telling me. I was like, Jesus. It's true. He really honed in on that. Well, I've got one. We were talking about it. And then it was like, all right, there must be a bar we can go to. There's one with alien. I'm not even making this up. No, I don't think you're making it up. I just think you found it really quickly. I just, I've never gone. I I think they just need to open a bar. I was just, you know, they sort of went one step too far. Anyway. That might be the startup that you could do. Oh, there is a bar and the engineers do play around with it. They they play poker uh, and it's a very not HR-approved bar, but we let them do it because it's on their own time. I suppose it's the the thing, there's, there's sort of two different things. There's the general culture of the business, but there is also the fact that you've got loads of individuals and, and a lot of people's jobs are quite boring. I mean, you know, a lot of the lower jobs in a, a bi- jobs any business, kind of boring, really. every job is boring. My job is quite boring yes. most of the time. You know, and so people really value the things like, remembering it's their birthday or buying them a cake or that kind of thing, because it makes them feel an individual. And I'm not saying they shouldn't. I'm just saying, if you think that that's what culture is, then you've missed the boat, which is what are you doing when you're not doing things that are exciting, when you're going out and you're saying, oh man, I got to do 28 tax returns by next week. And I just, you know, and this is mind numbing work. And if I get it wrong, I get in big trouble. Um, The reality is that, okay, well, do I really care about what the mission of the company is? And is this something that I truly believe in? Am I here for the purposes of just getting a check or am I here because I really do believe in the company and I believe what it's going to be building? I find it a little bit of a brutal destination of culture though I mean it's not how I would think I would think of the word of culture as just giving a shit about each other you know it's like your your family business whatever as you say a lot of people they don't maybe you know they do or they don't have a big social life whatever like you know if I have meetings online endlessly a slow resentment builds up I mean my brother emigrated to America and he's 10 years ago 10, 10 years older and he was part of the business for years and honestly every time he turned up all this 
built up resentment sort of disappeared. Not, you know, me personally, but we're all working in a business together. It's like, what's he been up to now? And, oh, I heard he did this. And it's like, oh, fucking hell. You'll be listening to this laughing at me. But, you know, you know, culture to me is just like how it feels when you walk in a place. Is it a happy place? Is this a place which which brings meaning to people's lives? I think that comes from the mission because not mentioning any names, other places I have worked, right? Um, (laughs) My CV is available on LinkedIn. (laughs) It's a very short list of places, unfortunately. But, you know, certainly other places I've worked, it's very clear that whatever the stated mission of the business was, the actual mission of the business was, for example, to make as much money as humanly possible, as quickly as possible, and for each individual at the top of that business to make more money than anybody else. That echoes down through the business and everybody's miserable because they know that their only reason for being there is to make money for the person at the head of the business. You then have mercenaries. You don't have missionaries. Yeah. You yeah. want a company of missionaries. You don't want a company of But that's of all coming from what is the actual mission of the business rather than what your stated mission is, you know, what, what psychologically it is. And, you know, I think for, to Andy's point, his point is, you know, a very clear bit of your mission is to be good to the people within the business. And to care about the people within the business. Yeah, it's just like, you know, you, you, you just have, have, have a good vibe, really, isn't it? I mean, as you say, you've got to spend a lot of your time working, but we're dealing in professional advice. Like, we need to get on really well to argue about stuff. We can't get people in ivory towers being like, oh, well, I won't talk to you about that because I know everything I'm talking about. In my-. It's like, no, 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 this is collaboration, man, and we're all going to fuck up. So we've got to, you know, it's like getting engineers to work together. It's, it's the same thing, getting, you know, professionals that, you know, generally, not certainly intelligent but definitely highly educated you know to get there and I, I think it's a really complicated question it's funny when we strip it down to an the, you know so the MBA rule of like the mission of the business is x I think you make a lot of sense so your culture you know what matters in your culture is that everybody is signed up to the plan that feels to me almost quite a startup it's like right everyone get on board fuck what you're going to earn we're going to go to the moon it's going to be amazing off a very sort of American you know Canadian uh, possibly very you know, American. culture well is in American has this kind of we can do it we're going to go get it and stuff and we just we're just not really quite wired up like that we don't like talking about money we're like oh you know don't wind everyone up so yeah, same thing in Canada actually we're, we're a lot more on your side than than the Americans to be honest with you um, but I so when you go down to your mission and you've got that's the core kind of nucleus but then there are the tenants that pull out of that so I my definition of culture is what do you believe that other people do not that's actually the fastest way to really quite kind of identify where is this company's culture and do I actually want to work here and would I get along with these people? So before the pandemic, as an example, we said we will never have an office. We really love remote work. We have a cult-like following towards remote work and we're never going to actually work in an office environment ever. And so we would pose those questions very specifically to new candidates to figure out whether or not they liked that or didn't like that. And if they didn't like it, then um, they wouldn't work here. And it's just a very fast way for me to be able to kind of figure out what do we stand for and what do other people do not. So the most important thing to define from a cultural perspective is what divides people, not what unifies people. So everyone wants to have like a company that they care about the employees inside of the organization. Like to to me, that's pretty much table stakes. But what do you guys do that not many other people do do? Because then that's a very clear way of identifying your culture. It might be, we hate remote work and we will never, 
ever have anyone work remotely ever inside of this organization because you're cutting out about 40% of the U.S. workforce, or well, the, the Western workforce right there. Well, presumably, though, it does work like you're remote and sort of flexible and what was it? Asynchronous management Asynchronous, or meetings. Yeah. yeah. Presumably works very well with, with time zones, right? Yes. So, I mean, when we saw the, um, the big movement towards a whole bunch of people quitting their jobs, right? More people quit their jobs in June of 2022 than in any time in history as a percentage of the population. Sorry, like, this we're, we're talking this June. Yes. Well, that's bad timing with interest rates and energy things. It feels like people are having to run back to work. So the Great Resignation is really feeding into what we're calling now the Great Migration. So there were about 5 million digital nomads pre-COVID. There are now 50 million. There are projected to be 250 million. And a digital nomad is someone that works from their computer, but they travel to different locations throughout the year. And it's a tax man's nightmare. It absolutely is. There's a whole bunch of companies called employer of record companies that actually solve for that problem. So they'll, you know, I don't want to name off a couple because I'm invested in quite a few, but uh, they're fantastic organizations to be able to work with, to be able to make this kind of framework work effectively. But fundamentally, we're seeing all of these people, particularly VPs, directors, even, you know, even some chief level officers, which is a bigger problem, actually, from a tax perspective, because they're making business decisions in countries that Very they're currently good. Not living in. I'm impressed. I was about to say permanent establishment. Yeah, you're all over I it. do I mean, know the, something the, the other about one, The other one is Visa. <laughs> that cracks me up now. People, no one's got a Visa. Everyone's just like cruising around the place. And it's like, they don't have a right to work. Big thing that's changed now is uh, there's 42 countries right now that have digital nomad visas, and about half of them are stating that they will um, not pursue anyone for any type of tax liability. So that's the big cheat code right now, is you want to be able to get those digital nomad visas. You need to double and triple check your digital nomad visa to be able to make sure that you are tax compliant when you enter that particular country. I have a list of them that uh, if anyone wants to contact me, I can give it to you because it's constantly changing. But that really allows for people to be able to say, yeah, okay, I can work from, um, well, not Portugal, as an example. That's one horrible country to be able to work remotely in. But Lisbon is one of these remote work hubs, but their actual visa program I was about is- to say, that's a popular one. It's good, it's good again, for tax because you you 10 years uh, foreigner. Yeah, but if you work for longer than three months in Portugal, you actually get in a lot of trouble um, from a tax perspective, if you, particularly if your corporation is not located in Portugal. So that's one thing that you need to be able to take into consideration. But a lot of these countries, you know, you can work remotely and you can have the free freedom to be able to work in, uh, let's call Barcelona, which is very close. Fantastic lifestyle, lower cost of living, fantastic architecture. Uh, there's a lot of really great people there that you could get to know. Great food. And I don't know the cost of London versus Barcelona, but I'm guessing it's probably like one fifth the cost. Unless it's Oslo. Mind you, that, mind you that music scene's rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, again, this is my, this again is my slight problem with it, is that if you've got all your senior people or, you know, d- you're describing digital nomads as kind of senior and management people because they've got the freedom to do that, who is, who is there training the junior people in that business and spending time with them? The platform. 
So time and time again, and again, I interviewed 36 nine-figure founders for this book that are running absolutely massive companies and they're running them asynchronously because that was really a forcing function for the remote pioneers. Everyone that was remote before the pandemic, they had to deploy asynchronous management. And it's like February of 2020, 4% of the U.S. workforce was working remotely. And by March, it was 45%. Literally overnight, we completely changed the way work was done. And I actually think it's the biggest change to work since the Industrial Revolution, but the Industrial Revolution took 80 years and we did that in March. So when you think about the switch that occurred, no one really paid attention to these, not little tiny, but these very quiet, massive companies, because a lot of these founders are very introverted and they don't necessarily want to kind of tell anybody about what they're doing. Pushed around by some extrovert at work, yeah. That's it. Yeah. I mean, not necessarily pushed around, to be honest with you. I think introverts just, they pause and they like, I'll give you an example. My product manager lives three blocks from here. I meet him once a year. He lives three blocks away from me. It's absolutely nuts. I told him he can come over whenever he wants. He's like, oh no, I don't really like you. Well, that was unfair, but he'll probably listen to this. Um, At least that's what it feels like, to be honest with you. Uh, But The reality is that when you look at this way of being able to run businesses, it is not just an issue of more tax advantageous or more uh, more effective for employees or employers. It is literally a more efficient way of extracting value outside of companies. And a big component of that is the platform is the manager, not necessarily the individual workers. So my VP of sales, he has a full training program on how to train SDRs and AEs, salespeople inside of the organization. And that's what actually trains people, not the VPs of sales. So we can train 100 VPs of sales at exactly, or we can train 100 salespeople at the same time, as opposed to the three to four people that he could train if he was working full-time just training other people. So it allows the organization to scale much faster. But if you could put together sort of training programs and then you're in a bigger company where someone's going to come in and watch lots of videos to learn how to do something, you know, YouTube's proven you can learn just about anything on YouTube, including salsa and yoga probably. But the the, 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 the issue is, is if you're a small and medium-sized business, you can't put together bespoke. Tra- other people could come in and say, oh yeah, we've got all this training material and you read it and you're like, this is bullshit. This is not how we train our people, you know? So how does OC, as an example, train, you know, we're basically a school. People come straight out of university into us. Uh, if there's no one in, the- they they don't know what a work environment is, first of all. So they're in school world. And so they have to kindly kind of get the whole like, Nobody cares about you. And yes, you're going to do a shit job for a while. And But you're part of this thing. And, you know, all these various psychological issues they've got to get over that they're going to get into shock for. And, and look, we've seen it. You know, people working from home doing something quite mundane, like an audit, you know. It's like, uh, but if I was sat in a team of 10 people at a desk, I don't get to, like, pass out. We're all like, yo, what's going on, man? You know, you know, get it done sort of thing. So I don't know. There's, there's two aspects there. One, I don't know how... How you package up my old man, whereas the, the, he sort of tra- teaches people these marvelously fascinating things in these little moments when he gets them. You know, he could try and put videos together, it wouldn't really work. And it's something that had to be done in front of him. And then secondly, it's this sort of being, taking someone from a school and train them into something. But you, th- all of this could be, the bit I can't quite get clear in my head is, do you think for some businesses, yeah, I get why you would do you know, there's a limit to training online. Or do you think it's no limits? It's like, it's as good or better than reality always. 
I think the content, 100%, the context needs to be synchronous. So your old man, whoever he is, I'm sure that he's incredibly wise and intelligent. That He's a great guy. He could produce the content that could be delivered. But then for the context of let's do a mentorship hour once a week where we just kind of sit down and we don't actually talk about the content necessarily, but we figure out, well, where do you want to go inside of the organization? Or you've got this really unique problem that you can't actually solve with the information that's available to you. And that's what we should focus our energy on because it might be a unique problem that we really need to be able to address. So we have a rule, which is, so I I was working in a company or not working in a company. I was a fly on a wall for a company called GitLab, which is a $28 billion company And they have no Zoom. They do not meet synchronously at all. 100% asynchronous. $28 billion company. No one talks to each other. And so I was was on Slack, um, which is their project management, their, their communication system. And I'm asking people questions. And after about eight or nine questions, and this was in research for the book, uh, someone popped over and sent me a DM and said, Hey, you need to stop asking questions. You're being really disruptive towards other team members. And I said, well, I'm just trying to figure out the answers to the problem. And they said, well, we always respond with a link. So that was a core tenant of what they had in an organization and what most asynchronous management does, which is if you ask a question, respond with a link so that you can actually train that individual to be able to go back to the process documentation as opposed to constantly annoying those VPs and executives inside of the organization that have a very small amount of time to be able to work on your particular problem so that you can scale the organization faster. And it's not just companies like GitLab. WordPress runs 35% of the internet, completely asynchronous. They do not talk to each other. Every single cryptocurrency on planet Earth, I mean, I don't know about you, but I can't go to the Ethereum offices under any circumstances whatsoever. They exist virtually. They are completely remote and decentralized. I just think this is difficult. This is a difficult concept for professional services firms. Because a lot of, you know, I spent half an hour with with a trainee today explaining to him the disclosure process on a sale right? That half an hour was so much more valuable than saying to him, go and do a training session on it or go and read PLC. But they're just always so specific. Clients don't yeah, get it. They like, think, you, oh, you must have seen this before. It's like, there's so much detail in tax and law. It's like, if one thing changes, it's unique. Uh, the interesting thing I'm getting out of this is I, I think big companies, uh, the economies of scale must be incredible because my experience of big companies is they are a Appallingly run. No one's making a decision. You've got management at the top going round and round in circles. And that's just me as an advisor. Once a company gets really big, I generally have to change tack from dealing with an entrepreneur saying, come on, let's do this. Let's, oh, fantastic. You know, great fun. Then I'm suddenly switching into mode where I go to a meeting, I give them my advice, and they all don't know what to do with it. And then they, six months later, they ask me the same question. I say the same shit. And then I actually change and I start doing ask covering. I basically start saying, I've been telling you this for five years that you need to do this and you have haven't done it. And I'm just going to tell you that in writing. So I'm not going to get shot. And it, and what I'm thinking is for big business, because like your examples, go back to the documentation, go back to the information. This is big business stuff. This is like companies over like 500,000 people upwards. I mean, almost your point, I would say remote working is a billion dollar business. It's like, um, you know, it, it can work, as you say, as a little lifestyle business. But 
a business like us, these small, medium-sized businesses that are sort of, you know, they, 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 they're, they're, they're organisms that have some benefit of bringing people together regularly, I think, because we can't create enough stuff. I can't, if I recorded all the Zooms I did, I can't reference it in a way that's useful to you, but you come and ask me and I can be like, bah, 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 these are the things you need to go. You know what I'm trying to say? I think- so I, I agree with you, but eventually you're going to break. So yeah. I would challenge you to go through the thought exercise of saying, okay, we have 50,000 people in the company. Now, how many calls are you getting? Right? Like, <laughs> the, like there's a certain scale point in which it's going to break. So I always ask people, okay, 10x your headcount, do all the same things work? What would you change? And a lot of the times it is, well, more process documentation, more bureaucracy, right? Like bureaucracy is seen as this negative thing, but in reality, actually, it's what makes organizations run and good bureaucracy, obviously. So that was this week's episode of BWB Extra, and we'll be back with a new episode next week. Until then, it's goodbye. Goodbye.